Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Sam Robinson. He's a red to blue coat, and he's currently head of growth and uh, growth enablement at Dentsu, which is a very large advertising and marketing agency. Sam, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Excellent. Sam, could you give us 60 to 90 seconds on your history, including your foray into the insanity of being the chairman of a football club? Well, God, I wish I, I wish I was chairman, but yeah, I'll, I'll touch on that briefly. Yeah, um, moved into sales, oh God, more years ago than I care to remember, about 35 years ago, because at that time you got a free car. And that was my driver. That was my yeah. Guilty and charged. Yeah, get a free car, and that's what I wanted. I was driving this clapped-out old Hillman Avenger, and I thought, no, it's time to move, it's time to change. Did that for a, for about 10 years, quite successfully. And then as part of Xerox's management development programme, I was, which was a two-year programme, I was moved into training. What they did at that time was they moved you into a different part of the function to give you a broader perspective of the business. But what I discovered there was that part of my reason for, for doing the management development was that I wanted to help other people, and I thought that was the next logical step for me. But when I went into the Xerox role, I realised that what I liked doing was just developing people. I didn't actually care whether they reported to me or not. And that's, although I've managed teams quite successfully over my time, that stuck with me. Actually, developing people is the thing that I like doing. Yeah. So at the end of that, I had a choice to make. I decided to stay in the, the training and development world with Xerox, stayed there for another six or seven years. Moved to ARM, the um, semiconductor intellectual property company. Did that for three years. Gave me a, an exposure to, to, to the globe, particularly the Far East. I've never worked there before. It was really, really interesting. And after that, I moved to OpenText and Sage. And it was the, those two companies that I developed my ideas of enablement as a business function. You know, and how, do we, how do we drive performance in the business? And uh, left Sage at the start of this year. Moved to, to Dentsu. And to take on a different challenge. So the, the growth enablement functions is, is about helping collate the, the research and content teams so that we provide research and content for the frontline client teams to, to present to their, to their clients. So, we, so we're working on this idea of client-ready content is what we're trying to, trying to develop them just now. So Ooh. I hope that's plotted enough for you, Marcus. Uh, no, no, that's, that's plenty to be getting on with. So my, my question is this. You talk about enablement as a business function, not a training function. What is the true purpose of enablement, and why is it done so badly in so many cases? I can't comment, and you know, I'd like to think the areas I've been involved in have done it quite well, so I can't comment in places that have done it badly. But for me, the purpose of, of enablement is to drive business performance. That's it. There isn't another, but maybe this, but maybe that. It's to drive business performance. Therefore, if your activities are not helping drive business performance, that's not to say that within your organization, they're illegitimate actions. It's just to say that they're perhaps not your team's actions. There might be something for a broader L&D function to take control of. For me, anyone who, who gets me involved with the sales enablement function, it's about driving business performance. Okay, so if we're going to drive business performance, then there has to be a grassroots shift in how we look at training, development, learning, and the commissioning of this stuff and where the onus of responsibility lies, because learning is the responsibility of the learner. I can't learn you how to do something. You have to learn it. But I also look at what is measured. I look at so many L&D departments, and they worry about complete shit like retention. I don't care how much you remember. 
I do care. Did you apply it? And did your results improve? Yeah. But when I bring a trainer in, I'm spending hundreds of thousands of dollars just for the training. And then their travel expenses, the opportunity cost of having 86 people, 1.2 million, which is $4,000 a day opportunity cost off the road. This stuff had better bloody work. But how often do we see the great training robbery happen? Because corporate training organization peddles their wares. Leadership decides this is the new flavor of the month, whether it's Sandra or Medpick or Miller Hyman or Richardson or whatever. And they just move from one framework to another, but the results don't improve. So what are the questions we need to be bringing to leadership so that they stop seeing training and uh, enablement as this thing you do to people and uh, make it part of the culture? Well, one of the things, I mean, I remember when I spoke to Sabi Gill, who was the managing director of Sage when I joined there, and we were talking about the concept of driving business performance. Not a difficult concept to get any sales leader to buy into. I mean, it's, it's relatively straightforward to get them to nod to that and say, we'll do that. But I remember at the end of the conversation saying to Sabi, I said, Sabi, you need to remember that enablement is not something you do to other people. It's something that you are involved in and you've got skin in the game. And in fairness to him, he did get involved in the enablement activities that we did. And that's where that that drive comes from. Most of the focus goes on the event, Marcus, because as you rightly point out, that's where the big ticket is. That's where the the money's not in the follow-up coaching that the in-house team do. The money is in in getting that person to the, you know, nothing wrong with that. I'm not, you know, I've I've used many different training companies myself over the years, although I have settled in one over the last uh, 10 years or so, but but you know, I've seen other training companies come in, but I think in fairness to them, you know, if their job is to sell you training, they've done their job. So therefore the impetus is on us as a business to look at how are we, are we, are we having the same ROI discussion about training that we would have about other investments that we make in the business? Retention's meant measured because it's easy to measure. Say that you're going to move the needle on pipeline generation and forecast accuracy, much harder to measure. And therefore, a lot of people shy away from it. Right. And this is where I have a real dilemma. I hear what you're saying, that their job is to sell training. But just because you can, should you, is the next question. Because I've seen so many training organizations and trainers, and God knows I've been guilty of it myself, taking on an assignment because the money was there and they said yes. And you know full well that they will do absolutely sod all with it And two weeks later, you'll just be a forgotten afterthought. Mm. And if you're lucky, one or two people might take some of it. So why is it in an environment where we're going into, we're now officially in recession, the Bank of England has told us, we're going into recession and we're still thinking of training as something you do to people. I I had a really interesting conversation yesterday with uh, a sales leader called Tim Kirby. And he pulled me up on something which I've been saying for two and a half, two and a half decades. Managers have only two functions, I said. Hire the best people and get the best out of them. And he said, well, I'm going to pull you up on the second one. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, that's the onus there is on managers to get the best out of them. That's something that you do to them. The actual responsibility of the managers is to create the framework and conditions so those people can get the best out of themselves and they can become self-coaches, they can become self-aware. And in my experience, 
most of the problems start in that commissioning stage because they don't focus on actually helping the person own their development. Yeah, I can understand what you're saying. You know, yeah, I would say that the onus is, you know, the frontline manager is pivotal to whether your program succeeds or fails. So if they haven't bought into it, then it's going to be suboptimal, no matter what you try and do. It, that, that's 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 just a, that's just a case in point. What we what we look at, so when we start to engage and, and look at what we're trying to do in terms of driving performance, there are three things that we look at. We look at structure, we look at skill set, we look at mindset. So we look at the structures that you've got in place, whether that's people, whether they're using Medic, whether they're using Altify, whether they're using Salesforce, or don't really care. Those are the structures. Secondly, are you then skillful enough to do something about it? Are you skillful enough to, to use that data that comes out of those, those platforms to drive the performance? In you? And thirdly, do you have the mindset of continuous improvement? Is your mindset about how do I get better at this? And that's the thing that that environment has to be created to allow people to do that. It's not, and, and that's that, that's that's a trickier one. I mean, the, I'll give you give you an example. My oldest son is a professional golfer, plays in the sort of he, he now works in the golf industry, plays occasionally. He likes to refer to himself as a business golfer nowadays. <laughs> but when he was actually playing tournament golf, you know, one of the things that the, the tours are good at is giving you stats on how you play. And he was about to embark on, he said, I'm not holding enough mid-length putts, 12, 15 foot putts, not holding enough of them. And his old coach, who was one of the old school, said to him, he said to him, Bob, a guy called Bob Torrance, he said, what do you think I should do? And Bob says, hit it closer. Now, <laughs> that is a, you say, okay, in one level you say, that's a glib response. But when you actually looked at the data, Paul's problem was not mid-range putts. Paul's problem was he was not hitting enough greens in regulation. So therefore, because he had misinterpreted his own data, he was about to embark on a series of coaching, which was of no use to him whatsoever. And that's where the, because people talk about your data-driven enablement and all this stuff, that's where the importance of saying, because Salesforce will spit out almost any set set of data figures that you want. What are you then able to do with that? And that's where a business-focused enablement function should be able to help that help the manager create that environment that helps them drive performance. Because one of the other things, you know, we're getting towards the stage where people will be starting to think about year start events and stuff like that. And there's always a, let's look at some high-performing sports team or other sport or, or individual athlete that does that. The biggest difference I've seen between athletes and salespeople or sales managers is that athletes, at whatever level, and I see this at the local football team as well, because I see the boys in on a Tuesday morning looking at DVDs, looking at what they were done, how they played, going over the, going over the stats, because they wear all the vests that give all of the sort of you know, yards run and all this sort of stuff and energy expended. Right. Start to look at those things and say, how can I get better? As sellers, we tend to run away from that data. I mean, how, you must have been in a situation, Marcus, where you're about to do some form of coaching and one of the old lags comes up to you and says, you know what, Sam, I was on a training course five years ago. You don't really need to bother about me. I'm okay with mm-hmm. this. Do the other boys. They're pretty new. And, yeah. and it's that mentality that we need to drive out of the business. That's the, one of the biggest challenges you face. Well, that, that is down to either a sense of entitlement or fear of getting found out. Now, yeah. what in my experience happens is often those become your best advocates if you handle them correctly. And the problem is that more often than not, people capitulate 
because it's just easier uh, to not deal with the conflict. And I think part of the challenge here is we've got to get a lot braver, a lot braver about our willingness to confront that type of cultural block. And in fact, I was uh, interviewing Steve Simpson, and he made the point, if you look at a company's standing agenda for their sales meetings or their leadership meetings, how often is culture even mentioned? Is it a standing agenda item? Is uh, a development part of their day-to-day agenda items? And more often than not, it doesn't even appear. Uh, it's always something that gets sacrificed, like coaching, planning, feedback sessions. What's it? Performance reviews. The number of people I've uh, seen who haven't had a performance review in years, and they're just not getting feedback. So they're not getting the support they need from middle management. Sorry, go ahead. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I... I was down delivering a, a workshop called Adopt a Customer Mindset and the clues in the title. But as a result of that, you, the, the VP of sales was on it and he said, look, I want you to come and talk to the management team. Mm. This was down in South Africa. Yeah. I will not say for which company, so I will protect the innocentness. <laughs> but I went down there and, and you had to say, we've got a few problems. I said, okay, you know, Uncle Sam's here now. Tell me what your problems are. <laughs> and you know, salespeople are not creating enough pipeline. Salespeople's velocity through pipeline velocity is very, very poor. Their close win ratios are not. There's far too many deals slipping from one quarter to the next. Forecast accuracy is poor. It was probably about a minute's worth of conversation, but it felt like five. But it's all the, all the usual litany of surface symptoms. Is, but at, the end of it, but at the end of it, Marcus, what I said to them was, I said, look, I said, I've only only one question to kick off this session. How did you guys let that happen? <laughs> And they said, well, what do you mean? How do we let it happen? I said, well, you're the managers. I said, you're creating that environment. I said, as a salesperson myself, we're like electricity. We take the path of least resistance. If you're not going to pull me up for not having a 3X, 4X pipe, if you're not going to pull me up for forecast accuracy, if you're not going to pull me up because my deals are slipping, then I'm going to, if you're not going to pull me up for filling in Salesforce properly, then there are no consequences. I'm going to think it's optional. I'm going to think it's, it's not a bother. And I think that was where we, I said, I don't have any sort of magic to it. All we're going to do just now is go down to a hardware store, buy some mirrors and look in them and say, look, what do we, what do we see there? And I just basically wrote up three words. I said, expectation, scrutiny, consequences. What's the, ex-? and we got, them to, we got them to fill it out. What are the expectations you put in these guys? And in fairness, a lot of them are pretty good. You know, there was one guy said, Sam, I've got this salt. You know, I'll tell you, I do a quarterly business review. At the end of a monthly account review, I have a, mon- a monthly key deal review. I have closed plan reviews and there was a, a pipeline review. So that sounds fantastic. Let's lift the lid on it. When we lifted the lid on it, he had five sets of deal reviews. I said, well, you're not having that. I said, you're not focusing it. You're not focusing the right area. This is like, you know, to take the football team analogy. This is like taking the football team analogy. It's like, we're going to look at goalkeeping, defending, midfield playing and forward line. And all we worked on for a week was how to score goals. You know, that, that, that's nothing to do with, you said, other theory sets well, that do with me. So th- this is where I have a real beef because there is nowhere near enough actual communication between managers and the salespeople in the field, the enablement people acting as the translators between leadership, because (coughs) management is the how to leadership's what. And the management layer is the biggest untapped resource, in my opinion. The catalytic impact 
having a really effective middle management layer that does high value management behaviors and leads instead of supervisors and coaches instead of tells and lets people fail but doesn't let the business fail. The CBI estimate that a 7% improvement in the nine core management competencies is the equivalent of 100 billion pounds additional GDP. I've often said this, that I do I do say this to the managers when I work with them. I said, look, it's easy with a guy with no target to tell you what to do. I do recognize that a frontline sales manager is probably one of the hardest positions in, in business today. Mm-hmm. It's a hard thing. This is where you'll, you get back to this conversation where I talked about structure, skill set, mindset. You'll notice initially when we talked about structures, it was all sort of computer-based structures. But actually, the management structure itself is one of the key structures. Like, What is your performance-based structure? How are you driving performance? What are you focusing your attention on? And when are you focusing it? I actually did a slide from my, from my boss at, at Sage, a guy called Werner Schmidt, lovely guy to work with. And I, I put up all of the tools that we had in Sage and I had them just a self-populating slide. There was something like 15 or 16 tools up there. And I said, look, this is not an exhaustive list, Werner. But then over the top, I just superimposed the word focus. I said, where does the manager focus and when do they focus? I said, that's not, we've got all of these different tools and all these different processes. How are they taught how to use them? They're taught, they're taught in, a, in abstract, if you like. They're taught that tool, then that tool. Then they're not taught how to integrate it and align it. Well, you, what expectations, scrutiny, and consequences gives is clarity. And what you've described is ambiguity. And ambiguity is the mother of all FUBARs. It is. Uh, ambiguity leads to mismatched expectations. It leads to disappointment. And then what tends to happen is the managers punish the salesperson for not meeting the expectation they never really understood. So they did their best at trying to do what they mind read the boss wanted or what they found easiest or most convenient and they've done in the past. And so it's the onus there is on the managers, but I'm not blaming the managers because I think the managers, like you said, have the most, one of the most difficult jobs, but it's precarious as well. And it's largely precarious because they don't have the right kind of support. Over half of managers in the United Kingdom, or around half of managers in the United Kingdom, woke up one morning, they were scoffing their Weetabix, someone tapped them on the shoulder and said, Sam, congratulations, you're a manager now. And that was their runway. And you go from an individual contributor and a technician to suddenly having to manage people. It's a completely different set of skills. Oh, absolutely, yeah. My question, long-winded way of getting to it, is why are we not focused on management enablement instead of sales enablement? I think partly because there's the perception that sales enablement is easier to do. I mean, if you look at you look at all of the adverts for sales enablement roles, whether they're directors or sales enablement specialists, virtually none of them talk about enabling managers. All of them focus on, in fact, a lot of them focus just now on onboarding. That seems to be one of the famous things to talk about. Not and, and virtually nothing about the about the people who are already onboarded. That tells you something about the characteristics of those organisations as well. If that says speaks volumes about their leadership. I mean, look at it. I mean, just just do a search on you know, after this call, Marcus. Do a search on LinkedIn yourself, and just look at the look at the profiles that are there. You will see virtually nothing about management in it. Because I think, to an extent, it's kind of its own enemy in this respect because it's become a cliche of itself. You know, manager as a coach, manager as a coach, 
remember the guy called um, Keith Rosen, who, yeah. who does a lot of management work in Australia, and sorry, in America uh, and and in Europe as well. In fairness, Keith was on a call with us at Sage. Werner had set this up, and Werner's a great sort of uh, supporter of the guy. And we were talking to him, and you know, it was interesting to talk to him. But one of the things that he said that stuck with me was when he when he said he said to Werner, he said, Werner, tell me a bit about your management culture. And Werner talked about the number of hours that we devoted a week to coaching managers, which was true. That that wasn't a, wasn't a, a, he wasn't lying with that. He, but he, what he said to him was, he said, Werner, if you're still measuring manager coaching in number of hours, you don't have a coaching culture. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective. It sort of it sort of moved my my needle and how I was looking at it as well. You know, and because I was my my start point was well, you know, if we're doing nothing, if we're doing ten hours, that's good. You know, but actually, I never. I, what it made me realise was that I didn't actually have an end point of not measuring it at all. But you know what, what Keith was referring to there, I think, is do you have an operational coaching culture so people coach on the job, on, yeah, the, yeah, at the yeah. point of need, yes, and they coach what they see. As Sandler did a study, I think it was twenty twenty. And uh, something like 83% of managers were utterly convinced they were uh, coaching, but only 17 or 18% of their people believed they'd received coaching from those very managers. Yeah. And there is a massive disconnect there because um, when we talk about coaching, what most people call coaching is actually either telling, it's training, or it's rescuing. I don't see a lot of real coaching going on because the person doesn't come up with the outcome themselves. Yeah. I remember this years and years ago. I was working for Canon at the time, and I used to work for a manager. Yeah, well, I'll not tell you the names to protect the innocent, but lovely guy. It was a great guy. I thought he went in, wherever you had a problem, he would take it from you and he'd get it fixed. You'd think, what a great guy. What a lovely guy that is. He moved on, and another lad came over from Edinburgh, from the Edinburgh office to Glasgow to, to as, as interim manager to work with us. And I walked in to get this guy, same deal. And he said, Look, I've got a problem here. He said, well, what's the problem? I told him what the problem is. He said, how would you like to fix that? And I said, well, I think we should do A, B, and C. He said, okay, on you go and do that then, and, and then come back and tell me how it worked. I hesitated for him. I thought, oh, under the old regime, you did it for me. But it was that saying, you see, oh, tell me what the problem is. Tell me what your potential solution is. Okay, go and execute it. And if you have any problems, come back and tell me. He gave me a day. He said, look, come back next Tuesday, tell me how it went. That made me realise that, that that was a sort of shifted the needle on me a wee bit. And, and it's, Getting that, that's because we do suffer a lot from what did they used to call it? The Superman manager. If you understand the drama triangle, it's actually the rescuer. And the rescuer helps without boundaries or permission. Yeah. And you just want to punch them, really, because <laughs> you don't learn anything. And all they do is they come along and they diminish you at an identity level. It's really lethal. Often we've advocated and idolize that kind of manager, that hero manager. Tim Kirby talks about fellowship. So how do you create the conditions where people want to come and work in this environment? And they come in a place where they know they're going to grow into the person they want to become. And that, I think, is the function of enablement. And it's part of the whole recruitment strategy. You know, we want to become destination employers. Otherwise, we're spending an awful lot of time and money trying to replace people who leave. Yeah. We did, we, I remember at Open Text, we had an awful attrition problem. We were up about 30% at one point in time. We were running virtually most of, I remember most of one year of enablement was, it was, it was spent essentially running onboarding workshops. 
Well, that's why they're all on doing onboarding because the turnover is so high. So high, yeah. the, the average retention is around fourteen months now. Yeah, and yeah. that's because people aren't making money. That's the problem. You know, so therefore, what we did there, there was that. That was again one of these ones where where you change it to a business focused approach. When I started that particular program, I was looking at the onboarding. How quickly could we get them onboarded? Rather than what I should have been looking at, which is what I eventually turned to, was ramp time which was time to effectiveness. How quickly were we getting them to be effective at doing the job? When did you derive the value you intended from making that higher? Because that's the time to value measure. Yes, it is. is. But it was after the the, the first year of doing it, we we had run something like, and the way OpenText did it at that time was that all onboarding was run in Waterloo in, 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 uh, in Canada. You know, so everyone flew from wherever you were. It could have been Korea, it could have been UK. Yeah. Everyone went to Canada. You know, of course, it's a great. You know, everyone loves your your transatlantic journey. I mean, well, this is yeah. fantastic. You know, Waterloo is not exactly. You know, it's not exactly <laughs> Paris or the North or anything like that. But you know, but what we realised was first of all, as a you know, when it got to us running seven or eight onboarding programs in a year, thought there's a bunch of money hemorrhaging out of this company. And you know, we need to do this differently. This is not so we I sat down with the team and said, look, this just simply isn't isn't appropriate. We cannot be running this amount of, you know, then we started to look at regionalizing the workshops and all the other things that went along. You know, there were some practical problems. I mean, some of the people that we needed that we needed to help with the onboarding process were based in Waterloo. And the technology was not quite as robust as it is just now. I mean, this technology that you and I are using it simply wasn't there yeah. nine years ago. You know, so it, it, you're having to use Skype. Yeah, yeah, and it was not it was not as robust in terms of what it's but you know we did that, but eventually what we started to look at was when are they if we looked, I think it was I'm trying to remember who came up with the with the data. It might have been um, oh gosh, the name wasn't it doesn't matter. One of the you know, it was Forrester or someone that came up with this data that said, look, effectiveness in an enterprise rep is when they can hit 75% of their quarterly number after nine months. That was the, so we had no measure at all. So we took that. So let's start with that then and see where we get to. Because we didn't have reps. So you, the, our hemorrhaging problem was caused by, as you said, after 18 months, folks still weren't making money. You know, so they were saying, look, this is this is just nonsense. I'm, I'm living in a basic wage and I can't live in a basic wage. Well, there are a couple of really very important shifts in the um, the employment market at the moment. I was at a conference yesterday and one of the professors from Cornell was speaking and he said that now about 40% of employees across all verticals are looking for new roles but two-thirds are planning to leave their current job with nothing to go to yeah now that is a byproduct of how they are managed yes yeah it is yeah that I think that's the thing that's going to cause a bit of a sea change Marcus and Ted because you, know, you and I could have had this exact same discussion 10 years ago, and not a lot has changed in it. But not that I'm an advocate for pandemics, but these are the sort of things which have actually caused a significant change in the way people... It's like blue tape recruitment. When did you ever see remote as an option for working with people? It's now there all the time. And in fairness, in the UK, remote sometimes means northern home counties. I mean, that's, that's, as, far, that's as, as remote as they want it to be. They don't want to go up to the frozen north like where I am. But... That's caused a significant change in the way that people actually look and they're addressing their businesses. And I can see, I'm starting to see, so I have to admit, I'm seeing some of it. I mean, the, the job I'm in just now is a contract job, so it finishes at the end of November. And so I've been talking to one or two other companies. Some of them, you can 
almost literally see the fear in their eyes when you start to talk about performance being related to that. You think, well, okay, right, that's these are a non-starter. But there are some now who are starting to sort of, you know, when you talk about the idea of performance being related to performance, being, being held accountable for that, are starting to say, yeah, we get that. And you know, a couple of companies I've been talking to recently, both of them have been in, have been really interested in the idea of of the, the frontline manager being the fulcrum of driving that performance. So you know. Again, you know, they might be saying that in order to try and encourage me to, to sort of look at them kindly, but I'm I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt on it and see that. The thing is, I'm seeing some discussions about that where five years ago there was no discussion about it at all. Well, the experience that I've had over the last couple of years has been really very instructive. One of the uh, companies that I've been working with and I'm partnering with implements a style of management coaching that is on the job, in the moment, at the point of need. And across the board, you see return on investment north of 70x, you know, 400x within six months, all document, documented and attributable. Now, what's really interesting is it's a simple shift in management thinking and behavior. Instead of just like your old manager versus your new manager, he just asked you, well, what would you like to do about it? And using those teachable moments, and not wasting them. At the moment, the average manager gets somewhere between 16 and 20 of those interruptions every day. Now, what proportion of them could be teachable moments where someone can learn how to do it for themselves, take a bit more ownership, grow just a bit more into their next role? And those are being wasted in every single team across every single company. Because managers' normal response is just to answer the question or do the work. Yes, because of the pressure that they are under. It is a sort of, there's a pivotal point between the, the seller coming up the way and, and the leadership coming down the way. There is a, there is a, there is a pinch right. point in there, which we can't ignore. I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's for doing it. But now that we've had the reset, the pandemic, this is the opportunity. And in fact, if you're not doing it now, by mid-2024, you will be paying an exceptionally painful price. That's when the recession will be at its worst. We will have had elections in the UK and the US, or they will be building up. So socially, we're already going to be in turmoil. And we've got the energy crisis, inflation, and everything else. So you need to be prepared. So my question is this. You've got a blank sheet of paper. You are sat down with the board. What is your starting point? What is the one point that you would begin with in order to create the three-year outcome, which is that we want to achieve this level of growth sustainably? My start point is their start point. I had this discussion yesterday, actually, somebody were talking about creating dashboards and creating an enablement dashboard. With my current boss, creating an enablement dashboard. And I said to him, why? Why are we creating an enablement dashboard? Our dashboard is surely if your job is to drive business performance, then your dashboard is their dashboard. So therefore, what are they trying to achieve in the next three years? Therefore, those by definition become your their goal. You need to show how that you can actually interact and and respond to that. That was where I, I would be going with this. If they were said, like, we wanted your know, couple of companies I've been talked to have just received a, a significant private equity investment, right? From that comes pressure. So get them to recognise there's a pressure going to come from that. This is not a charitable giving. It's not just giving they're doing here. They're doing that because they want to get they want to get their money back and some more out of that. So therefore, 
are we then set up to actually handle that pressure? Because you're going to require out of that an increase in performance in order to get to whatever your goal is. Whatever you go, it doesn't matter, Marcus, what your goal is. There's going to be no goal is there's very few goals which are maintain the status quo. Mm. Most goals are how do you get better at it? Therefore, with that, you're going to have to look at the structures that you got in place. Are they fit for purpose? They might, you know, take again a footballing analogy. If you get promoted from the championship to the premiership, is the team that got you into the into the premiership good enough to keep you there? And is the style of training doing the style of play that you is it good enough to keep? Because that's where you want to be. That's the same deal with a lot of these companies. Are the structures and the skill sets and the mindsets that you've got good enough to keep you where you want to get to? So for those of you who've listened to recent episodes, uh, again, this theme is coming through very, very clearly. It's about the reinforcement. It's about what happens after the training. It's how people implement. It's how people practice. It's how people rehearse. It's how people are given permission to fail and learn by doing as opposed to being the best people in theory, which is what they end up with by being in a classroom. Training has its place, but I think there is an overemphasis on training because of lazy thinking and the hard work that goes into making these deep transformational changes. And what you're describing actually is a transformation function. It's not a training function. Yeah, you're right, yeah. As I said right at the start, you know, training and coaching is what we do. It's not what we are. What right. we are is, the, is, is you're right, it's a transformation. I'm happy to, I'll take that label. Yeah, I'm happy okay. to take that label. So in that case, the obvious question is, are we are our leadership even clear about what the job to be done is? Are they conveying what their desired outcome is clearly? In fairness to the leadership, they probably are clear on what it is they want to do. The job here, Marcus, is to change the perception of your enablement function, to show that 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 is part of that transformation. One of the early examples I had of that was, again, working at OpenText, where we created the, 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 um, the sales performance charter. Now, we did that. That was a conjunction with sales leadership, with operations, and with enablement. We all had a role to play. And the idea was to create a one-pager that said to the seller, basically, this is your job. And to the sales director, this is your job. And to the vice president, this is your job. Because the problem, the business problem they had in terms of trying to achieve growth was that responsibility for the number ended with the regional vice president. It never flowed down past that. So therefore, how did we start to do that? And as part of that, yes, we had a role in, in both running the, the coach. I mean, one of the maps behind me is, is part of that. It's, it's the, 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 the 3D coaching map. We did it with a company called Gazing Performance who are based in, in Richmond. And Gazing had the, the, the 3D idea was, you know, was diagnosis, develop the, the outcome, and then disciplined execution. And that was where most of the, the diagnosis and the development of the, the solution was not really the, the hardest part for most managers. It was the disciplined execution part that we spent most time on. But that 3D coaching model was very good because it, it, it calls it out as a, as a strand that has to be addressed. That's really interesting. I'd like to explore that in a second. But that disciplined execution piece, again, one of the simplest solutions to managers not having time is calendar blocking. Now, I was recently at an event and I asked the question of a couple of hundred managers and only three in the room put their hand up that they were calendar blocking. And everyone in the room was complaining about the same things. 
run ragged, too much upward delegation, can't rely on uh, the staff, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And it's the same, same thing happens time and time again. And I think part of this is because leadership and managers don't spend enough time in reflection. Yeah. So what can enablement do to turn reflection into a function of management? So part of, part of that model, part of the, the, the 3D model, was that it's based on a thing called, it's not rocket science, zoom in, zoom out. That slide I told you about earlier where we had all populated with those 15 different you know, tools that we had, what we were saying to the managers is that you're zooming in. So we, we basically got the Salesforce process, we aligned the customer process to that and said, okay, here's what you should be using when. This is when you zoom in, but also you have to take a, a deliberate action to zoom back out again as well. And then take it. So it's overview and specifics, overview and specifics. That should be the way that you, if you find yourself starting to get dragged into the weeds, there's almost a sort of mental pause point. Say, right, hold on, let me go back and overview this. Let me have a look at what it is. I'm, what's the big picture? What am I trying to achieve? Where are we going with this? Right. Now I need to go back into that. And we created that. There was there was a, a relatively straightforward map that we created for the managers to do that. That, that said, look, here's the stages of. Salesforce, here's the stages of customer engagement aligned to that. Here's the, the tools you should be using. And even as a starter for 10, here's a couple of basic questions that you should be asking. Thought prompts, if you like. You know, if we were looking at the customer story, I said, do we understand the customers and their story? Are we sure that we're a critical priority for them? Because often those things, they're basically just asking for evidence. So what's your evidence? How are you going to get that? How can we support you doing that? It's just a sort of, you know. But Sam, this is where I see so many organizations create the conditions for their own failure because the first thing they do is they inundate these people with product information yeah and the message you send is you talk about product features and functions no one cares no one wakes up one morning thinking oh i want a piece of accountancy software yes they want their accounts to work smoothly and to have good cash flow and uh, visibility they don't care about the functionality. No one wants to be, well, you and I have discussed this before, Marcus, nobody wants to be handled. No yeah. one likes that. No one likes that. So when have you, when's the last time you went to your shop and somebody walked up and said, excuse me, sir, can I help you? And you said, thank God you're here. <laughs> you know, most of us are usually quite polite about it, but mentally we're saying, away you go. I know how to buy. And that's the point. It's the, you know, the, the mindset around this is it's the client's choice to buy, not your choice to sell. And therefore, by creating this idea that, that we go and sell to customers, part of that is creating some of the problems that we face because the client nowadays is more sophisticated. They are. And uh, again, I think part of, one of the reasons that statistic, the customer being 60% of the way through, always gives me the willies is because what that tells me is that the salespeople who are experiencing that kind of buyer are turning up one or two quarters beforehand and just making an attempt to transact. They haven't put the hard miles in and they haven't understood the business and they haven't understood the dynamics of the, the relationships and the factions and their priorities and when they're in active versus passive looking modes. And the net result is that they turn up at all the wrong times in the buyer's journey because they, they've never really had to do anything other than uh, follow this process of being part of the factory floor. Whereas certainly buyers are a lot more sophisticated. They've got access to all the information. So my question is, why are we not spending more time teaching business acumen? 
understanding the moving parts, understanding human psychology? Those are two separate questions. So are we teaching business? I'm not certain that people are not teaching it. They might be teaching it, but it's it's less of an issue to me than the human psychology part, because that's the thing that I find more interesting. Because if you look at that, if you take that 60-odd percent figure, it says that you're rounded. You're basically at the proposed solution part of the, the deal before you ever get engaged. But the reason that we don't do anything about it is because at the solution bit is where most of us are most comfortable because we're talking about our stuff. Yeah. And therefore, the, the actual deal is to go back the t- back in time and take you say, here we are, here we have got to, here's where I need to get to. Let me give you a practical example of this, Marcus. I see you're desperate to jump in there, but let me give you a practical example of this. We recognised at OpenText that from one quarter to the next, there was about 60-odd percent of slip deals, which was in line with what the, the marketplace average was. And a lot of sales leaders were saying, Sam, we need to do negotiating skills training. Need to do negotiating skills. Okay, why? Well, I thought that was self-evident in the question, Sam, because people aren't all good at negotiating. So let's understand why they're not very good at negotiating. Let's have a look at that. So what we did is we looked, so the, the managers were treating it as an end of pipeline problem. We're getting towards the end as it gets to the tickly bit, negotiations are becoming hard. When we actually stripped back the deals where those negotiations were becoming hard, what we found out was that it was a front of pipe problem. They Absolutely. didn't understand the customer's basic reason for getting into the cycle in the first place. I mean, when I was selling, in fairness, I don't want to make myself sound like Methuselah here, but when I was selling, you know, there was the brochure. And therefore, I was in charge of the information. And I didn't give you the information unless you gave me something. There was a trade-off on there. Nowadays, client can go online and find out a ton of stuff about you before they even engage with you. Therefore, a lot of our sellers, and particularly the more inexperienced ones, think, oh, God, that's great. Right, let's see if we can get them from there to the finish line. Actually, what your job is is to say, okay, what got you to there in the first place? And that's, it sounds like this, but one of the things that, that Martin Fern of um, Gazing said to me once, he said, and in fact, he wrote a short paper on it. He said, one of the biggest things you can do here, Sam, is to get your managers and your sellers to be world-class at the basics. Yeah. There is no question. He's 100% right. And the best salespeople, the best managers I know, they're always practicing fundamentals. But it's not sexy. You're asking how sometimes our stuff doesn't work. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of snake oil salesmen in our business. There's a lot of people out there who, you know, the number of times I get it in my inbox, I'm sure you get it as well, this magical tool which is going to increase your pipeline by X thousand percent. You think, oh, my God. If that was actually true, first of all, why do you even need to advertise it? You know, people would just be ripping it off the shelves from you if it was actually true. But it also forgets, to your point earlier, it forgets about that there's still a human interaction that goes on here. There's still a motivation to move, an intention to move, a present solution, a manage anxiety, and all of that thing, all of that okay. stuff is going to happen. So, putting you on the spot here, what are the two or three really hard questions you would want to pose to leadership going forward as they're approaching 2024 and beyond? What are the hard questions that no one is asking them that you would love to get answers to? What are the hard questions? Try to narrow it down to three. I'll take more. (laughs) For me, the hardest thing is getting them to move. I can get people to intellectually understand the idea that enablement is a business function. 
but actually to get them to do it seems to, that that's the bit where I'm where I'm. I'd actually welcome any of your, any of your listeners of yours who could, could help me out. I would welcome some guidance in that. But that that's the bit that I'm right. finding okay. struggling with the, the hardest part of it. Is so it, I, I think that because I, I struggle with this as well, and I think part of the challenge here is the willingness when they realise how much hard work is involved, yeah, and how difficult the thinking is that that frightens them off. Yeah, much um, easier just to pay a million bucks and run a course. Well, yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's easier to spend. Uh, I'll give you a great example of people spending other people's money for to make the problem go away. One of the guys that we trained over at Oracle picked up a three million euro deal in an SAP environment. And the reason was that in two years time, the CTO wanted to change jobs and he didn't have the big Oracle implementation under his belt. So he thought they were pretty much the same thing. So he'd buy Oracle. Now, the reasons why people buy more often than not, are poorly understood. Uh, the middle of the funnel is almost totally neglected because of the way CRM works. What's the close date right now? Focus on the close. Because, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, where your attention is is where your energy goes. If, yeah. that, if your attention's on the close, don't, don't be surprised if your energy is focused on that. I think you're, you're absolutely right in that. And I think that's the tricky challenge. I still have people in this company, I mean, just now who rather than regard them as critical business skills, talk, call them as soft skills, which really winds me up. You know, you know, understanding the product is a hard skill. That's a good, that's a good sort of skill to have. But actually understanding how a client buys something is a soft skill. And, and that I think that does us a disservice as well. But this is really interesting in terms of the stuff that people talk about all the time. We talked about standing agendas. And every time you ask that question, Everyone has financials or the numbers somewhere on that standing agenda. Now, what else do they have on there? More often than not, in sales, it's pipeline. There's nothing about development. There's nothing about culture. And there's nothing about career progression that's happening day to day. Most sales meetings are a weekly ass kicking. There's no real learning. I think that your CRM should be doing all the reporting. What on earth? do I need to do a pipeline review for when all of that information is in the CRM? What I need to be doing is coaching you on what you need to do next mm-hmm. and helping you to advance and identify when you've created the conditions for an objection to occur. You mentioned in the green room that objection handling, what people buy, I think, is incredibly harmful for the business. Closing skills, prospecting skills, objection handling skills, negotiation skills. None of this stuff actually matters because that's all about technique and that's doing something to someone. It's manipulative. And that's my big beef. So I I would love some help here. Um, How do we get this right so that we're enabling learning that delivers the results and we get away from this, the shackles of this training lock? One of the last things that we ran at uh, I ran at Sage. Well, in fairness, the team executed on it. I was I, I was just instrumental in sort of putting it together with them. But we ran the, the, the Adopt a Customer Mindset program that I spoke to you about. But off the back of that, we introduced a thing called the Performance Clinic. And the Performance Clinic was our first attempt to try and embed the skills that we had been teaching. So therefore, you know, we, we licensed Adopt a Customer Mindset from Gazing. Um, I think they call it something different in the main market, but it doesn't really matter. So the performance clinics were once every two weeks. Every team had to go through them. They were one hour at a time. 
And that hour was prescriptive in that there was 20 minutes or so where we were either talking, there was either someone from product or solutions marketing was there to do their pitch, do their thing. If they weren't there, we would do a, a, a specific skills element about maybe questioning technique or broadening the agenda or something something like that. Yeah. There was then a 20-minute sort of slug, which was the team themselves facilitated by enablement, which would move from, we would talk about you know, the thing that we'd just seen. And then there was a facilitated 20-minute segment, which was, right, how are you going to take this to market? We did that with them over a course of three months. So at the start of the three months, enablement's input was that. The managers was this. Over the course of the three months, it changed to that. And they did it. We were doing pipeline management, or sorry, oil can maintenance and that. So it was, you know, when we started, the reason that I know that it succeeded was that as in every company, there was some point in time where the great and the good said, stop everything, sell, sell, sell. Just sell more. You will not sell enough, sell more. That that excellent coaching metaphor that they give us out. And they said, and cancel the performance clinics. It was the sales managers themselves who said, no, we're not canceling the performance clinics because they give us measurable business results. And that was the thing that, that encouraged me the most to say, look, actually, we're on the right track here. We're doing the right thing. Because I was already there, Marcus. I had, my, I had my one or two slides ready for the QBR to say, look, here's why we need to do it. I never, ever needed to present them because the managers themselves said, this is a good thing. It helps us drive business, drive performance in the business, and we're not stopping it. I can only endorse that approach because that's how I run my training programs. So you bring real life situations, you work on those, you learn the skills by testing out what may or may not work. I might nudge you, other people give advice, they'll try stuff out. But the objective (coughs) is to learn what it's like to buy from you. My objective is to think as the customer. I want sellers and managers to really understand what impact their behavior, what they say has on the customer. Because that's the reality. Selling is not about shifting product. It's about finding the common ground and helping two human beings or several human beings resolve a problem. That's our job. And I think that's been forgotten in the pursuit of the numbers. And I'm just worried that that will continue for a long time yet because they can't let go of it. It may may do, Marcus, but in fairness, I mean, because of your programs that look like this and and, and folk that, you, that you're talking to and the ideas that you're getting out there, there is that that is starting to change. I would be a bit, I'd be deeply depressed if I thought it wasn't changing at all. It's not changing as fast as I'd like it to. You know that, but but you know, people are seeing it more. You can still see. I mean, I talked to you earlier about the number of jobs. There's no shortage of enablement roles up just now, but there's two or three on there which I've seen up for a number of months now because. I can read in the specifications and the you know, must be on site, must be based in London. You can start to see that that, that there's a mindset within those organisations which is not open to, to a change of wind. I'm thinking, what did these people do for two years while the pandemic was on? How did they run their business? Now, all of a sudden, the pandemic's gone. Let's regress to the way we were rather than sort of adopt what the innovations were and move forward from that. Right, but Sam, this is really uh, such a critical issue. Preparing your managers for what's to come, I think, is the single most important strategic miss that most people will make. Because what then what we need to do is we need to prepare managers for the unknown and how they will respond to that and how they will 
enable their people to respond calmly and logically to it instead of just going into a rabbit in the headlights and go into panic, which is what you've just described. People who are trying to get control in an environment where clearly employees do not want to be controlled anymore and are not willing to, you've got to think differently. And when something doesn't work persistently, you've got to look in the mirror and say, well, maybe it's me. Look, Sam, we've, we've come to time, and this has been a fascinating conversation. Tell me this. You've got your golden ticket. You can advise the idiot Sam, age 23. What one bit of advice would you give him? Don't ever leave sales again. Don't go into enablement. Um, <laughs> what, would I, what would I advise myself to do? I think if I was advising myself to, to do anything, I think it would be looking back on that, on, on that career, Again, not trying to sound like Methuselah again, but when I look back on it, I wish I had stumbled on this this business focused idea earlier, rather than event focused. You know, if I'm going to if you're going to make a career in enablement, focus on the business outcomes. That will give you more mileage than running a great event. The great event will be forgotten in four or five weeks after it's run. That's good advice generally because people pay for outcomes. They do not buy your product ever. They never will. They pay for outcomes. That's what they intend. And if the outcome is not achieved, they're disappointed and they sack you and they go to someone else. Excellent. Okay, Sam, one book or podcast or audio, video, whatever, that you would strongly recommend so that people get to grips with this idea of enablement as a business function? Well, believe it or not, I I would take them, I would would recommend a, a sports book. I was, it was given to me. I was asked to do some training for a, 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 when I was at Xerox. This is how long ago it was. And um, Xerox concession up in Newcastle. Lads gave me a, a book, for, said, don't open it, so much for Christmas. So it was getting near to Christmas. So I, 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 did, the, I did the training, went up, went up the road, opened up this book. Clive Woodward winning. I thought, Jesus Christ, a book on English rugby. That's just what I need for Christmas. <laughs> However, anyone who's read it, will say it's a blueprint for developing a high-performing organisation. Yeah. If you look at what it, you're thinking clearly under pressure, you know, the, the, the sort of marginal gain stuff, all of that. If you get past the first 50 pages about how, how he wanted to play football when he was young, that was fine. But after that, it is a real insight into how to drive performance. And I, I massive admiration for him and what he achieved. That's the one I would go for. That's always my default. I've still got it. It's just, I've still got a dog-eared copy in my thing, which is... You know, all the, you know, the, the, the things are bent, bent down, all the bits that I revisit from time to time. Well, I'll give you a book that I think you'll enjoy, which is Bob Rotella's book, The Golfer's Mind. Yeah. And replace golfer, the salesperson, and you've basically got a mindset template. It's a lovely book. Very yes, 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 yeah, yeah, I know that at least one of my sons has read that, read that book because it is, you know, you, 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 when Bob says, if you're going to hit a par three, it's 170 yards over water. You're focused. If you keep saying to yourself, don't hit the water, don't hit the water, all your gains here is water, 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 water. Absolutely. Like, I, I seem to have a magnetic attraction to water, sand, and long grass. So how can people get a hold of you, Sam? Listen, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm happy for them to contact me. If you want to, you're my, happy to give you my personal email. It's uh, sam.robinson1970 at gmail.com. I'm happy for people to drop me a note. I'm always happy to engage in, in an enablement conversation with people. Perfectly happy to do that. Excellent. So, Sam, thank you so much. Uh, you too, sir. Enjoyed it. 
So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you know someone who'd benefit from it, then please tag them so that they can listen as well. And if you feel the urge, then please do give an honest review on Apple or whichever podcast platform you use. Now, if you're interested in coaching, there will be a link in the blurb, but I'm launching a new program, a couple of new programs. But the one I want to talk to you about is Successful Selling. It's every two weeks, we take live real life problems and we work through them. We're not going to teach you technique for technique's sake, because that makes you manipulative. What you're going to do is you're going to learn how to use conversational selling in order to get your customer to understand why they need or want what you have or to disqualify it out without manipulation or pressure. So if you're interested in that, Marcus at laughs In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.